0: For this week, if you had any doubts at all, any doubts whatsoever that we are engaged in an actual war for the very, very soul of this country, for the preservation of a way of life that was handed down to us by our forefathers, the greatest generation of Americans who ever lived, those doubts should have long since been erased with the arrest, indictment of the 45th President of the United States, Donald J. Trump on, no pun intended, threadbare and trumped-up charges. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of several easy ways. You can either go to the Twitter, sorry, the iTunes App Store, the Google Play Store, and you can download the free Podbean app, which is our hosting service, and subscribe to the show by looking it up that way, or... You can simply subscribe directly using your native podcast uh, aggregator app on your uh, iOS device or your Android device, and you can search The Jamie Dury Show and subscribe that way. Either way, you'll be able to leave reviews, comments. We desperately need more of both. Please give us a five-star review. The more comments we get, the positive nature, the faster the show will grow. We try and do a good job for you and report things that are not widely spoken about in other places, so please... uh, Give us a review and tell your friends about us. So on Monday, the President of the United States was indicted and arrested and arraigned. But this is just one symptom of a sickness of a society that we're going to go down the list and check off. It's this, coupled with censorship, That is being visited upon us, not only us as individuals, but journalists who dare to oppose the mainstream playbook. And it's being done under the guise of stopping misinformation. Unfortunately, misinformation as defined by those who are stopping it. In other words, anything that they don't agree with is classified as misinformation. If they agree with it, it's not misinformation. For instance, just to give you a quick example, we'll come back to it. When Donald Trump says the election was stolen, if he says it or if you quote him saying it or you quote other sources as saying it in a YouTube video or a post, it's taken down or in a tweet because it's spreading misinformation. When the Democrats and Hillary Clinton said that Donald Trump only won in 2016 because of help from the Russians, that we investigated him three times for two impeachments and a uh, special prosecutor investigation found nothing, that wasn't disinformation because they said it, and they agree with it. So it's not a question of people saying different things, it's people saying the same things, but depending on who says it, it's either disinformation or it isn't. But getting back to this indictment of Donald Trump, it has been an American tradition that presidents are not indicted. It's been an American tradition that we don't prosecute our political adversaries. Third world countries do that. Adolf Hitler did it. Dictatorships do it. Mao Zedong did it. Joseph Stalin did it. We don't do it in the United States. But it's been done now for the first time. For the first time, we've had a former president not only a former president, arrested and indicted, but we have the leading political opponent, the leading Republican candidate for the 2024 presidential run, indicted, and the head of the country, the head of the Democratic Party, President Joe Biden, says nothing about it. Deafening silence. So first, let me bring you up to speed on this indictment if you haven't already read about it. It's exactly what I said it was going to be. When people started uh, rumors about there's going to be multiple counts, 34 counts, I said this is a way to make nothing look like something. Basically, what they said was, Donald Trump did this, and we say that this is against the law. Oh, and by the way, he did it 34 times. So each time he did it is going to count as a separate count. The problem with that is, since these are identical charges for an identical act committed 34 times, if they get an evidentiary ruling in advance by a judge, a trial judge, or an appellate court saying that these acts don't constitute a crime, not just one of the counts falls, but all 34 of the counts fall. And that is basically the opinion of most of the legal experts. Alan Dershowitz, the former Harvard law professor, constitutional scholar, 50 years a professor of law at Harvard University, said that there is no part of the case that is not weak. Not one. He was charged with 34 counts of felony level falsifying business records. Chris Conry, a prosecutor at the office of Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Brack, revealed during Trump's arraignment. The prosecutors alleged that Trump directed one of his lawyers, Michael Cohen, during the 2016 presidential election to pay adult film actress Stormy Daniels $130,000 in U.S. currency to prevent her from going public about an alleged affair between her and Trump, and Mr. Trump denies this. Court filings also alleged that Trump then reimbursed Cohen through monthly checks, and documented that payment as a legal expense in the Trump organization. Now, I think that most people, if it wasn't Donald Trump, with the polarizing effect that the media has given him, not Donald Trump himself, I think most people would say, well, if the man, he is not hiding that he made payments, he paid it to his lawyer, therefore... What's inappropriate about calling it a legal fee? A felony falsifying records charge requires a prosecutor to prove that it was done with the intent to hide the commission of a second crime. Now, there's the first pitfall. The indictment and the court documents do not specify the second crime. But at a press conference uh, on Tuesday during the day of the arraignment, Bragg had alluded to several possibilities, three specifically. One would be a violation of state election law that bars any conspiracy to promote a candidate by unlawful means. Uh, And then there's also a violation of federal cap on campaign contributions and a violation of state tax law. Now, the other thing they could charge him with, or they could say was the crime he's trying to commit, was. campaign finance law. But see, campaign finance law is a federal charge. And the Justice Department already investigated Mr. Trump for this and said he did not violate federal campaign finance law. So if you're trying to make this a felony by saying he was trying to hide the commission of the second crime, and the second crime was a crime that the Justice Department already said was not a crime and Mr. Trump didn't commit one, then you're pretty much done. And legal experts say this. Arguing that state law was broken to hide a federal campaign finance law violation is unusual and some say this contention doesn't hold water. It may be difficult to show that hush money payment constituted a campaign expenditure rather than an expense in a personal matter which is a key element in proving an election law violation. Now why did they even go this route and why did they even make it a felony? Well, I'll tell you why. Because It's really a misdemeanor, if it's anything, and it's nothing, and misdemeanors have a two-year statute of limitations. But then they tried to argue that, well, the statute could be told because of Mr. Trump being in office. Well, the trouble is, Mr. Trump left office two years ago, this past January 20th. So the two-year statute of limitations is still gone. And then they're trying to say, well, COVID, the governor signed things, this is all BS. They know they have no misdemeanor. They know that the statute of limitations bars them. So they try to add an air pump to it, inflate it, make it look good. As Bruce Cutler, the famous lawyer of the late Dapper Don of the Gambino family, John Gotti, once said, you know, the government takes this roast, this rancid roast, and they dress it up with all types of sauces, and they put it in a beautiful casserole dish, and they bake it, and at the end of the day, it's still rancid. That's the case here. According to trial attorney John O'Connor, the weakest part of the case, the court documents didn't reveal what the second crime was, but it's the weakest part of the case. First, no crime was identified in the indictment. Number two, the prosecutor named several possible crimes that could be hidden by false entry. But that's an improperly charged crime. You cannot have alternative crimes. In other words, he's saying, well, there are several that he could have been covering up. Well, that's known as a duplicitous indictment, said Mr. O'Connor. You cannot say the defendant committed a crime because of either A, B, or C, take your pick, because some jurors might find the defendant guilty on A, some on B, some on, some on C, but none of them unanimously. This article on Marine Front goes on, the vagueness in the charging documents may also be a breach of Mr. Trump's constitutional right to due process. According to Mike Davis, who is the founder of the Article Three Project, a conservative judicial advocacy group, quote, Bragg brought the first indictment of a former president and didn't even allege the legal basis for his invasion, said Davis. Now, Davis speaks with some authority. He clerked under Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. It should be dispositive, meaning under the 14th Amendment to our U.S. Constitution, Americans have the right to due process of law. Due process includes fair notice of the allegations against you, so you can defend yourself in court. Now, so basically we have a prosecutor who confronted with the expiration of the statute of limitations on a misdemeanor, had to make it a felony. In order to make it a felony, he said he committed this crime because he was trying to cover up another crime, but he can't name what that crime is and tries to give a smorgasbord of uh, options at his press conference, but not at the arraignment and not in the charging document, not in the indictment. This is what I believe they call a facially insufficient indictment. We call this an infirmed indictment. This is the defective indictment. And I don't think this case will even see the light of day of a courtroom. I think it gets thrown out on motion. And I believe if it goes before any self-respecting jurist, it will not only be dismissed, but it will be dismissed with prejudice, meaning that the district attorney will not be able to bring it again. He will not be able to go back to another grand jury and try and ram this sort of thing through again. So that's the state we have here with Donald Trump. Donald Trump has raised over $8 million in the 24 hours that's elapsed since this indictment was announced. And several other people, including John Malcolm, vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative think tank, said that these charges are very irregular the government bodies that usually investigate federal campaign finance violations are the Department of Justice and the Federal Election uh, Commission. Both of these bodies opened investigations against President Trump and closed them without charging him because he did nothing wrong. And it looks as if you have, this is a direct quote, you're a local district attorney, resurrecting what would normally be a federal charge in order to bootstrap a misdemeanor on the New York laws into a felony. Now, that is a very irregular charge. So I don't think anything is going to happen with this indictment. I think Donald Trump is going to come out of this stronger. He was larger than life before. He's going to be even larger than life when this case dies its very timely death. But there is still more going on. Now, I said that there was an erosion at the beginning of this program of a lot of our societal and cultural norms. One of them was, of course, that we don't charge our political opponents like this and we don't arrest former presidents, especially on completely fabricated charges. But we also have something that many other civilized Western countries do not have, an absolute right of freedom of speech. We think of countries like Great Britain and Australia as civilized and democracies or democratic or democratic republics or parliamentary governments, but they don't have freedom of speech for their populations like we have here. And we are slowly but inexorably losing it in this country. Not only are we seeing censorship by way of silencing opposition voices under the banner of misinformation. But we're seeing very, very necessary, very, very vital information not being reported simply because the media doesn't wish to report it, because they want to stick with their narrative. Now, one of the biggest hoaxes forced down our throat was that this COVID virus came from a bowl of bat soup in a wet market. When all the experts that have looked at it, the way the virus operates, the way its structure was, that this was definitely artificially created. Now, last month, and you heard nothing about it, a man by the name of Dr. Robert Redfield, who was the former director of the CDC, testified before Congress He testified about the COVID-19 virus and how it was actually created. How there was no doubt that it was a result of of gain-of-function research. This testimony was nothing short of explosive, and yet you heard nothing about it. If you didn't look at certain alternative newspapers or online newspapers, Uh, alternative sources of media, you would never know. This is not people making up conspiracy theories. This is people reporting on what took place in Washington. Dr. Redfield directly linked gain-of-function research and the creation of the sars covid 19 virus to Dr. Anthony Fauci and to the U.S. government, including the Department of Defense. He absolutely believes... And gave sworn testimony to the effect that Fauci and Jeremy Farrar, director of the Wellcome Trust and soon-to-be chief scientist at the World Health Organization, who this idiot Biden wants to surrender our rights to and give them the right to lock us down if if they decide a pandemic has befallen us again. He said these people covered up the lab leak information. Let me give you a direct quote from uh, Dr. Redfield's extensive testimony. In September 2019, three things happened in that lab, he said. One is they deleted the sequences. Highly irregular. Researchers don't like to do that. But there is more. Redfield clearly states that the gain-of-function research received funding from the National Institutes of Health, the NIH. And who was the head of the NIH? You guessed it, Dr. Phony Anthony Fauci. They received monies from the NIH, the State Department, and the US Agency for International Development and the DOD, Department of Defense. Sounds like germ warfare research to me. For those that missed it, there is a YouTube video of Redfield reading his written testimony in the hearing. It's a very, very lengthy testimony. And he says that this was definitely most likely a leak from the lab uh, and not some random chance event that happened in a wet market in China uh, due to a bowl of bat soup, which I think is pathetic. I don't know how they even come up with that as a believable excuse. The only thing I would like to have answered eventually, if we can ever get to the bottom of this, is whether or not this leak was accidental or whether it was deliberate. That's a major question. That's a major difference in terms of international law and uh, the peaceful coexistence of nations, because we do know that after this virus did leak from the lab, whether by accident or on purpose, the Chinese were not good world citizens. I know everyone likes to put the onus on us. We have to cut back on this, and we have to cut back on that, and We have to restrict our use of fossil fuels to save the planet, but the Chinese get a pass on everything. If they were really good citizens, once they knew this virus leaked, why didn't they restrict travel outside the borders of China? Why didn't they, just as they did in China, lock people down, seal people in buildings as they do in these communist countries? If they were so afraid of it spreading within their country, why weren't they equally concerned about this virus spreading worldwide, why didn't they say, no, you cannot go to Italy, you cannot go to Europe, you cannot go here, you cannot go there until we get a handle on this. They did nothing of the kind. And I think that action in the aftermath of the virus having leaked from the lab speaks volumes and is probably, while not conclusive proof, at least suggestive proof that this thing may very well have been leaked deliberately and not by accident. So more on this in due course as we learn more. Now I want to move on to one of the other uh, points that I uh, highlighted at the beginning of the broadcast about how American culture and societal norms are being eroded. And our most sacred, I'll say, right is the right of freedom of speech, the right for the people to be able to criticize without fear of repercussion, their government, uh, their politicians, the right to a free press, which will hold power to account. But increasingly, we've seen that they're only willing to hold power to account when the people are, who are in power are people they disagree with or don't approve of. Our media has increasingly become owned and manipulated by a leftist cabal. It is no longer news news as we knew it back in the days of Huntley and Brinkley and you know, straight down the middle of the road, uh, Walter Cronkite, or even people like um, Tim Russert, the late Tim Russert, and former host of Meet the Press. Himself, admittedly a liberal, but he was a very, very even-handed journalist. Just because he was not a conservative, he didn't treat conservatives any more harshly than he con- he treated liberals. Uh, Liberals. He was very, very fair in his interviewing of guests on his show. But that's all gone now. We don't have reporting of the news anymore. Instead, what we have is the manufacturing of news. We have selective reporting, things that people don't want you to hear about, you don't hear about. Things that they want you to hear about, you do hear about in disproportionate ways, so they can convince you that the problem exists in a greater Volume or percentage or magnitude than it actually does exist. In fact, it may not even be a problem if they would report it in its true numbers. But they try and exponentially increase in the minds of the American public the incidents that are taking place so they can try and shape society. One of the biggest uh, things I'm talking about, of course, is these shootings. Whenever there's a shooting, you hear about it, regardless of where it is. Or how few people have got shot if two people or more, if more than two people have gotten shot, now is classified as a mass shooting. That's just the way it is. Uh, there were people getting shot on the streets of the city of New York during the crack wars, drug dealers. It wasn't unusual to have multiple shootings. We didn't call these things mass shootings. But, you know, there are about 50,000 people who die in motor vehicle accidents every year, many of them multiple Uh, victim fatalities in these accidents, you don't hear about these. You hear about them if they're local, but you don't hear about an accident that killed three people in California, here in New York, and they don't hear about accidents that killed three people here in New York, out in California. But if there's a gun incident in California that killed three people, you hear about it here in New York, you hear about wherever it happened, because they disproportionately report things they want you to know about, and they underreport things they don't want you to know about. For instance, the National Rifle Association has a publication they put out. Two publications actually. You can uh, choose to have a subscription of the American Rifleman or the American Hunter, depending on where your interests uh, lie. But in each of those publications there is a column in the beginning of the magazine called The Armed Citizen, and these are reports that are culled and gleaned from throughout the country of people who have used guns to defend themselves in their homes, legally and successfully. You know, when you live in big urban areas like New York City or Los Angeles or Chicago, and you have large police forces that you rely on who are readily available and the response times are good, we don't look at things these uh, the same way. But if you were living in a rural area in Nebraska or Iowa or the south someplace where police officers are fewer and further between and response times aren't always as quick and in some cases you have to be your own law or at least take a more proactive role in your own self-preservation and defense until the prop authorities can arrive, uh, you would take a different attitude towards gun ownership. And the armed citizen is filled with stories of even little old ladies who wake up to a burglar coming in their house and they fire a shot and either they chase him off or they wound the person. So guns are not bad, but they want you to believe that every time a gun is used, it's always bad. It's only bad when bad people use it. Someone sent me a very interesting Photograph the other day, a cartoon, so to speak, a photograph of a young boy, and the top caption says, my teacher told me that guns kill people, and I told her that my pencil failed my last exam. Uh, and you, if you could have seen the picture, and if you listened to what I just said, you can appreciate the humor in that remark. But there's a publication that I read quite frequently called the Epic Times, not to be confused with the New York Times. Now, people on the left will try and disparage this thing, trying to say it's misinformation. No, it's reporting on news. They have an op-ed page, they have an opinion, but they report on stories that other people don't report on. They're not making stories up. They're just reporting on things and taking a view of things that other people are not. Now, this article I think I need to read, uh, predominantly almost unedited. I'll skip around if I feel I need to. But the title of the article is The Warnings Unheeded Now Threaten Our Fundamental Freedoms. And our most fundamental freedom, just before the Second Amendment, is the First Amendment. Everything goes there. This is a commentary piece. The First Amendment is at a critical juncture. Recent congressional hearings on the Twitter files brought the matter into full public view. Freedom of speech of the press are hanging by a precarious thread. Do you want a future in which information flows freely, or one in which an information elite controls those flows, quote-unquote, for our own good? The choices we make over the next few years will determine which of those futures we get. It's tragic that we have let the problem reach this dangerous state. What heightens the tragedy, however, is that the war against America's most cherished freedoms was predictable and preventable. If those of us who value freedom want to win, We're going to need a strategy grounded in a clear understanding of what's happening and why. And that's true. The people who are doing these things are very, very clever. What they're doing is, and you saw this, so you've seen it encroaching. It really took off uh, in the wake of this COVID virus. They really wanted you to believe this COVID virus was more than it was. They really wanted you to believe that it was an accident and that the Trump administration wasn't doing enough about it. Any, Information that you spread about the vaccines or anything that didn't tow the mainstream media line, it was suppressed. And how are they suppressing it? Well, they're not suppressing it by calling it censorship because censorship is illegal. What they're doing is they're just calling it, well, we're trying to prevent misinformation. No, you don't prevent misinformation. You let intelligent, honest people judge for themselves what's true and isn't true. And people who want to suppress misinformation or suppress opposition, I should say, opposition viewpoints and labeling it as misinformation are people who are acutely aware in their own minds of the feeble nature and the weakness of their own position and their own philosophies. And they know they cannot survive in a free debate in the arena of ideas. So they try and suppress these countervailing uh, opinions by calling them misinformation. But it's censorship any way you look at it. And the Twitter uh, file story brought this to the fore. Allegations that big tech and social media manipulate information have been around for as long as we've had tech and social media companies. Allegations of bias, I'm reading more from the article now, uh, allegations of bias among the mainstream media are even older. In recent years, however, both the allegations and the supporting evidence have ratcheted upward to unprecedented levels. Okay, now that's true. We've known that the media was biased for years. They they ravaged former President uh, Bush. They tried to go after Reagan, but Reagan was so popular they had to temporize their, their assault on him. But they went after uh, Bush uh, 43 in a big way. Uh, but after COVID, it really came to the fore. And this... Uh, Accessing of information that Elon Musk made available really opened it up. Yeah, uh, Again, from the article, he assembled a team of journalists with a curious pedigree, registered Democrats with a distaste for Donald Trump and his supporters, whose track records skewed considerably left of center and whose recent work has demonstrated deep concern about the politicization of journalism. So he got to Democrats who didn't like Trump, and he gave them unfettered access. And even they found a deep, broad, and disturbing pattern of collaboration between big government and big tech designed to promote, quote, official stories on multiple issues, throttle competing theories and arguments, and sanction those who dared to question government propaganda. Now, this is absolutely true, and the government is getting in on this with Joe Biden trying to put together his disinformation bureau, they were going to decide what should be allowed to be published and what shouldn't be. Could you imagine this? Could you ever have imagined this back in the 1960s or seventies back when I was in school? Did you ever imagine we'd see something like this in the United States of America? Now these two journalists who Mr. Musk gave access to were Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, and they testified before Congress. Now the Democrats on the panels sought to belittle their credentials. They sought to question their motives and tar them as part of some Republican-funded right-wing conspiracy. But they were still left-leaning journalists, and they're trying to absorb their shock at the depths to which the formerly civil libertarian left has fallen. Now, this writer for the commentary, uh, written by a man named Bruce Abramson, goes on to say that uh, far from shocking that the fall was predictable and predicted. In 2001, amidst public disgust with tech companies following the collapse of the dot-com bubble, he says, I set out to make sense of life during the transition from the late industrial age to the early information age. I analyzed what I called the first forefront page stories of the information age, the dot-com bubble, the Microsoft antitrust trial, the rise of open-source software, and the Napster-driven wars over digital music. Contrary to popular opinion of the time, I believed that these stories were far from distinct. I saw them as four manifestations of a single underlying phenomenon, and my goal was to understand that phenomenon. I found it. It appeared most clearly in the digital music arena, but it ran through all four stories and through much that has happened since. It appears just as clearly in today's war on free speech. It involves an entirely predictable pattern of opportunity, action, and reaction. And when I read this, ladies and gentlemen, I knew what he was going to say before he even said it. And he says it now. The starting point is digitization and quantification. The internet has changed the economics of information. Throughout human history, information was scarce, hard to acquire, and expensive to process. Skilled professionals, spies, scholars, lawyers, accountants, clerics, doctors, could command a premium for their knowledge. When the internet went public, anything that could be digitized and quantified suddenly flowed freely. Information was there for the asking. The premium shifted to filtering. The ability to discard unwanted information and arrange what remained, and that's true. Back before digitization of information, everything was in print, you had a newspaper. It took money to put up a newspaper, and newspapers had reputations. You knew you could trust big names in news like the Wall Street Journal, and you used to be able to trust the New York Times before it became FishRap. but these big, big papers, uh, mainstream news outlets, you could trust them back in the day. But when you go to a website now, the Wall Street Journal's website doesn't look substantially better than some other competing website that could have one or two people behind it running it that may be agenda-driven, leftists, right-wing, you don't know, mostly leftists, but they look just as good as everything else, so there's no way to really understand it. You have to know through independent investigation Uh, what sites you can trust and what sites have a reputation for spewing forth inaccurate information. And so now, when you have to adding to that, these social media companies like Facebook and Twitter, which have so integrated themselves into people's daily lives, that they have now displaced the traditional channels through which people glean and and, um, digest information, they now are in an extremely powerful position because they control what people read. And when something violates their misinformation policy, they spike it. But when it violates their misinformation policy, that statement is not synonymous by saying, well, it violates the truth. In other words, if someone says the 2020 election was stolen, that violates their misinformation policy because they don't want anybody to even question that could possibly have happened. They want you to believe that a man who stayed in his basement and can't get three people to show up at a speech got more vo- votes than Barack Obama, who was supposedly the most popular president, right? But in 2016, when Hillary Clinton and others said that Donald Trump stole the election without any proof whatsoever, that was okay because it was information they agreed with. So it's no question that these tech companies are worried now Uh, That's why they're probably applauding the indictment of Donald Trump, because they know damn well if Trump gets back in, that they're going to be regulated as they should be, because they're operating more like a public utility than private companies. And they have so much influence and so much sway. The $400 million that Mark Zuckerberg spent on Facebook to try and influence that election goes to show you just how much influence they have and why they need to be regulated. Economic shifts generate massive opportunities for creative entrepreneurial people and bring glorious benefits to millions of consumers. The Internet was no exception in this regard, and neither was the predictable backlash against it. So you see, these things are real. They're not just in your imagination. He went on to research this ad nauseum. He looked at the music Industry, he looked at other industries, uh, but he said the pattern was there. There's a pattern. Technology creates opportunities. New businesses exploit those opportunities. Consumers benefit. Powerful incumbents fear their loss of control. Threatened incumbents seek allies in government. Government changes laws and regulations to protect incumbent interests. Media campaigns educate the public, quote unquote, educate on the merits of the new policies, basically propaganda telling you, we did this because it's good for you. Not because it's good for the special interests that paid us to do it. It's good for you. And new laws ensure that the next wave of technological change runs largely through the powerful incumbents rather than against them. By 2003, he said, I had distilled this pattern and showed numerous ways that it had already unfolded and predicted that it would soon hit parts of our economy and our lives far more significant than the music industry, and suggested some ways that we might prepare ourselves for the coming battles. It took another two years to get my analysis published. It went largely unnoticed, so we're talking 2005. Twelve years later, 2017, then-Senator Ben Sass described the ways that this pattern had forever disrupted the dynamics of employment. This, too went largely unnoticed. Today we see that disruptive pattern threatening the most basic of our civil liberties. Its manifestation in the arenas of speech, propaganda, and censorship are clear. Now, unless you've had your head buried in the sand, or unless you're just a dyed-in-the-wool leftist, you know these things are true. You know they're true because you see it with your own eyes. You saw the films, and now we saw even more, the complete films, of the quote-unquote Capitol riot, which was no riot. Nobody came with a gun or anything. We saw what was described as a riot, simply because it was a protest that took place at the Capitol. Yet you saw the entire summer of the George Floyd, ri- uh, George Floyd riots, where towns were taken over, people that were insurrectionists took over police stations, Suspended laws on their own authority. Refused to let people come in and out. And the prevailing powers that be, the governors and the mayors in these places, just said, well, people are just expressing their right. Their right to do what? To pillage and plunder and riot and destroy private property? That's not a right that exists in this country. That's not freedom of speech. That's a perversion of the freedom of speech to intimidate. The riots that took place on Inauguration Day in 2017, when Donald Trump was sworn in, how people who just didn't like the fact that the election didn't go their way destroyed everything they could find. Nobody talks about it. To this day, nobody's been prosecuted for it. The city of New York is going to pay people money for it, saying they were were misabused uh, by the police in a riot in the Bronx. And yet there are people that were arrested in connection with January 6th, which is now going on over two years, almost two and a half years, and have never gotten a trial yet. They've been held incommunicado. They have not been allowed visitors. They must be in a terrible mental state. This is what was done in Soviet gulags. This is not something that should be done or even heard of in the United States of America. There is absolutely no reason, two years on, that any of these people should still be in jail. They should be out on bail if you think there's a, a trial, think there's a case. You can't tell me that all these people are flight risks. I'm just not buying it. But this man, Mr. Abramson, identified a lot of these things years ago, and we're seeing them come to fruition now. And the big bullet points are, this is how each step in the process is how he identified them and how they played out. Technology creates opportunities. That's the Internet opening up entirely new areas for creation's range of ideas. New businesses exploit the opportunities. Talking about companies founded since 1995 that have control technology. Consumers benefit, meaning the central communications systems to our lives proves that they confer real value, supposedly. Powerful incumbents fear their loss of control. Threatened incumbents seek allies in governments. Government changes laws and regulations to protect incumbent interests. Media campaigns educate the public on the merits of these new policies. And the new laws ensure that the next wave of change runs largely through the establishment elite, the powerful incumbents, rather than against them. This is becoming a closed shop. It's a closed shop and now in the private technological sector, It's a closed shop in our political system. So Donald Trump was not wrong when he spoke of the swamp that needs to be drained. Twitter. It's moving on from this. Twitter has just recently restricted multiple accounts belonging to prominent conservatives in recent days. After they posted, I'm reading from another article by Catabella Roberts, after they posted about an upcoming rally called the Trans Day of Vengeance, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia had her account suspended for seven days after she repeatedly posted an image of a poster about the rally. In the same post, Greene alleged that Antifa was organizing the event, which is being hosted by the Trans Radical Activist Network. After her account was restored, she issued a post from an account that read, my congressional Twitter account was suspended today. How is it violent violent speech to expose... The Trans Day of Vengeance. A day after a mass murder was committed by a transgender shooter and to call on the DOJ to investigate it. I condemned the incitement to violence and demanded a federal law enforcement investigation into the tweet. Her account was promptly suspended for seven days. Now, I wanted to hit this last because I wanted to segue into this final uh, section here. You know, you see a lot of these things pop up on Facebook and every place else that portray these transgenders and the transvestites and all these people as harmless people. Uh, we've never done anything with an assault rifle. Uh, you know, why are you bothering us? Why don't you go take people's guns away? Let me just give you a little piece of information that I'm sure nobody has told you. This was on americasbestpicks.com. And it's information about the Colorado Springs shooter, the Denver shooter, the Aberdeen shooter, and the most recent, the Nashville shooter. Do you know what they all have in common? They all identify as either non-binary or trans. The Colorado Springs shooter identified as non-binary. The Denver shooter as trans. The Aberdeen shooter as trans. The Nashville shooter as trans. Now, why should this shock anyone? Why should people be completely taken aback by this? Well, the answer is, you shouldn't be. Because as I've said before in this program, the eminent scholar, Dr. Paul McHugh, the former head of psychiatry at John Hopkins University, the first medical institution in this country to perform what used to be called sex change operations, what is now euphemistically called gender reassignment surgery, called this phenomenon of people wanting to change their gender or get sex change operations largely a mental disorder that they were suffering from. And there may be some rare cases, as is the case with almost anything, where you might find a medical justification for it. But by and large... Dr. McHugh pointed out these people are suffering from a body dysmorphic disorder. It is no different than the very thin, emaciated girl who's anorexic or bulimic who looks in a mirror and sees a fat girl. No different from the man who looks in the mirror and sees a woman. He can see whatever he wants. The rest of us see what he is a man. And Dr. McHugh goes on to state that it is beyond medical science's ability, at least now, to turn a man into a woman or a woman into a man. We cannot reassign gender. All these surgeries get you at the end of the day is a very masculinized woman or a very feminized man. But they can't change one into the other. They just can't. And they shouldn't. Their tracking studies prove to them 20-, 20-, 30-year-long studies that people who opted for therapy achieved no worse uh, results than people who opted for the surgery. Another way of saying it is that people who opted for amputation of perfectly healthy body parts achieved no greater degree of happiness and contentment in their lives than the people who opted for therapy. And I would say the people who opted for therapy were probably better off because they haven't gone down an irreversible path, which you do once you get that surgery. It is irreversible. So they no longer perform the surgery at Johns Hopkins. He said these people have a mental disorder. And this is borne out by the fact that their suicide rate is 29 times that of the general population. And no, it's not because of the reaction to people to them. It's because of the infirmity that existed before anybody reacted to them. They were unstable. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's like taking a gay person and say, fix my son. No. A gay person or a lesbian woman knows exactly what they are. A lesbian woman is a, a woman who says she just prefers women. A gay man is a man who prefers men. It's not unlike people who go into a restaurant and prefer different things. Some like fish, some like steak. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not criticizing that. They know who they are. They don't have an identity crisis. But looking into the mirror and seeing a woman when you're a man, and looking into the mirror and seeing a man when you're a woman, bespeaks something very different. So we're seeing all of these things coalesce and they're doing it on a multi-front basis. They're trying to kill the one champion who threatened to thwart them, Donald J. Donald J. Trump. They're trying to kill him legally. They're trying to emacuate, uh, emasculate him. They're not going to succeed. And they're trying to control the flow of information. And that, the flow of information, is the most powerful thing a government can do to control a population. When you can no longer trust the information you get, not only from your government, but from the media, you've lost it. You've lost your lives, you've lost your freedoms. This is one of the reasons why podcasts like these, podcasts like mine, are growing. More and more people, people my age, baby boomers, people who can remember when the country was really, really great, are getting their information more and more from podcasts because they recognize they cannot trust the information they're getting from what used to be traditional sources. And they recognize that once this freedom is lost, it's almost lost forever. As Ronald Reagan once famously said, you can vote for socialism and communism, but you've got to fight to get rid of it. We cannot slide down this slope. So I urge all of you, pass on what I'm saying to you today. Pass on my podcast to your friends. What I have to say should make perfect sense to you because I'm not lying to you. When I say I'm giving an opinion, I give you an opinion. When I'm quoting a source, I say I'm quoting a source. But truth has a familiar ring to it. When something makes sense, it's because it's probably true. It's common sense. But it is equally true that our government is waging a war against us. They are inexorably trying to erode our freedoms and take us past the point of no return. And it is our duty to fight for our freedom. Now, you may not like Donald Trump as a person. You may not think he's a perfect man. You may not even think he's he's a good man. But there is an expression called being a man for the times, a man or a woman for the times. Our history... I've said this before also on other shows, is flush with examples of people who were less than perfect but saved this country. Abraham Lincoln was a manic depressive, a manic depressive his whole life. And he was viewed as perhaps the greatest president in this country's history, him and George Washington, the father of our country, and Abraham Lincoln, the two greatest presidents we ever had. Lincoln saved the Union. We came that close to losing our country, but he saved it. Ulysses S. Grant was a drinking man, a smoking man, greatest general we had, defeated the Confederacy. George Patton, flawed individual, one of the greatest field commanders we had in World War II. Without him, we might not have been able to win. Douglas MacArthur was an egalitarian, great man, not a perfect man, but a man for the times. Defeated the Japanese in the Pacific, along with Admiral Nimitz, and then ran the government of Japan for five years as the supreme ruler and set up a government and a constitution over there as efficient or better than our own in some regards. We have a history of being saved and rescued by imperfect people. Because although they were imperfect, they were perfect for the time. And that is the case with Donald Trump. Now, I don't think he's imperfect, but even if you do, he is the only man for the times. For the Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury.